Well, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8. By the way, that prayer was actually not just the word prayer, but I was also drawing heavily from the Westminster Shorty Catechism. You want to know what some of those explanations were. So, Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me get there myself. What we're going to do here is we're going to read verses 1 through 8. But I'll work through the whole chapter. So, out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing and hear the word of the Lord. And all the peoples gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. In the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Shema and I, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkishah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josephat, Canaan, Eliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I read to you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Truly, Lord, your law is perfect, reviving the soul, and your testimony is sure, making wise the son. May we come with eagerness to hear, heed, and be harnessed by your word. Amen. You may be seated. So normally you're supposed to start a sermon with an illustration, but the problem is that chapter 8 is the illustration. I mean, it's just a, it's an illustration of certain things, and so I'm going to actually do something different. Lay out the principles, and then the whole sermon is about the illustration of that. <laughs> so the Westminster Shorter Catechism is very clear about the written revelation of God. And two of the questions and answers, it goes like this. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith and salvation. And the next question. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation. That the word may be 
become effectual for salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up on our hearts, and practice it in our lives. And so here, Nehemiah chapter 8, we have an extended illustration of these principles actually laid out in the Shorter Catechism, where the people, the people of God are gathering, here's the four points, they're gathering around the law of God, they're worshiping around the law of God, they're joyful around the law of God, and they're reforming around the law of God. That's the four points. They're on the back of the worship God. Two things as quick reminders before we dive in. So I want you to look, I hope you can pick up a copy of the Jewish calendar that was back with the worship guide. And I've seen this before, I showed this to you on the first day that we started this series. Um, you will notice, and I put the references in there, you will notice that in a 12-month period, most of Nehemiah happens. So chapter 1, verse 1 happens on the ninth month, or yeah, the ninth month of Kislev. That's when he hears the report about Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 1 happens six months later or five months later in Nisan when he goes to Artaxerxes and is allowed to come back to Jerusalem. Then all the way down to Elul, the sixth month of the year, is when the wall was done being built. So all that travel time from where Artaxerxes was to Jerusalem, to getting things set up, and then actually building the wall, all that happened here, and now we come to the seventh month. So Nehemiah chapter 1 through about chapter 12 is in a one calendar year. That tells you this was really phenomenal. I mean, it happened quick. And starting in chapter 8, 9, and 10 and so, it's going to slow way, way down and just be talking about the seventh month. It's almost like the gospel. You know how the gospels go through three years of Jesus' life, like really fast, and then all of a sudden the last week takes the last one-third of each of the gospels. It just slows way down, and then it really slows down at the crucifixion and then the resurrection. Very similar to the, the patterns. So there's the first thing you need to remember. The second thing, the second note, is that we need to recall that the seventh month is a high month. It's a month that is filled with festivals. If you have your Bible open, not the Pew Bible, but your Bible, you would write next to chapter 8, Nehemiah 29. Nehemiah, I'm oh, sorry, I'm sorry, Numbers 29. Numbers 29. You go back and read Numbers 29 you will see three primary festivals that are in the seventh month. It is a huge, important month. It's intended, first off, on the first day, which is where we start here, chapter 8. It's the Feast of Trumpets on the first day. And then it's, the, it's Yom Kippur, the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement on the tenth day, which is not mentioned in this chapter, but I'm assuming they did it, it just... That uh, Nehemiah was busy going somewhere else with this, but it's the tenth day of this month. Then, starting the fifteenth day, and for seven straight days, is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths or Sukkah. And then, after the seventh day, comes a big Super Sabbath. Whatever the day of the week falls on, that eighth day becomes a Super Sabbath day, and that's the eighth day. You'll see that play out here in Nehemiah. So you need to remember that chapters 8 and 12 is really all sitting inside the seventh month, which is a high, uh, high month in the Jewish calendar. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, good. All right, so let's go ahead and get in then. 
So gathering around the law of God, that's verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. And I hope you have your Bibles open. I want you to notice that chapter 7 ends with a reminder that everyone was scattered hither, thither, and beyond. This is how chapter 7 ends. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. They were all out there, all taking care of their own business, off in their towns and villages far away. But notice what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. Now they are gathering around the law of God, and notice it says they gathered as one man. They gathered in all the unity you can imagine. They gathered as one man. The picture here is that there is harmony, and a harmony is gathering together around the law of God. It built harmony. It built a harmonious gathering. They gathered as one man. Some additional observations surface about this gathering. Notice as we work through these verses, first off, they gather around the old written law of God. Notice what happens. Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. Notice that it's an assembly of God's people who are satisfied. With, the written, with God's written revelation. They are not anticipating anything new. There, there's no prospect of some new thing from the Lord, some fresh word of the Lord. They're coming wanting to hear the old written revelation of God. I think that's huge. That's where they're camping out. That's where they're set up, is around that written revelation of God. Therefore, they gather around the law with anticipation, with expectation, and with satisfaction that this law, this written revelation of God is sufficient to lead them in restoration and lead them in covenant renewal. In fact, twice it says in verse 2 and 3, both men and women and all who could understand what they hear, they, they heard, verse 2 and then verse 3, it says that. So, verse 3 ends with, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There was nobody saying, well, that's, that's written in the word, but God spoke to me personally, and that's what I really want to hear, is this kind of internal revelation. No, they were quite satisfied and longing for the written, inscripted revelation of God. I think that's ginormous, actually. Also, notice they came longingly yearning, yearning for the law with determination. Verse 3, from early morning until midday. I know that makes you scared. You think, oh no, I'm hoping I can do that. But from early morning to midday, about a three to four hour period, they wanted to hear it. They wanted to hear it so bad that they stayed. They didn't check their clocks. They didn't look at the, their watches. They didn't look at the clock on the wall. They didn't put their cell phones and see what time it was and how much longer this guy was going to be reading. They were there wanting it, yearning for it, longing for it. There was no rush, no hurry, just a hankering for the good word of God, like honey dripping from the honeycomb. And so all of Ezra's actions were in the direction of enhancing the hearing of that long-for-law. Notice he's, they build a platform for him. 
Okay, so that he's up above it. Has anybody ever spoken to a large crowd? No. Okay, let me tell you the joyful experience of speaking to a large crowd. There's steps behind you. You want to go up the steps so you can speak over the crowd because human bodies are great absorbers of molecules. If, I, if we had a large crowd here and I'm speaking face to face, it would bounce off Adam's body and Adam's body and the people in the back wouldn't be able to hear. So you want to be up high so you can speak over. George Whitfield, the, the great outdoor preacher from the 1700s, the 18th century, would uh, stand up on a wall, usually with the wind blowing from behind him. Find a place where the wind was blowing from behind him, so that as he's above the crowd, he could speak, and the wind would carry his words even further. He was known to preach to thirty thousand people. That just boggled my brain. That's how he did it. That's what Ezra's doing. He's got a platform up high so he can speak and be heard by the crowd speaking over them so they can all hear him. Okay? Everything Ezra's doing is to enhance the hearing of the longed-for law. This is why in most Christian churches, pulpits are up a little bit higher like this. Okay, So that way it can carry, the voice can carry to that without a sound system. And yes, I can preach without a sound system. Right, but that's what that's for. Okay. Notice lastly that the people showed honor to the reading of the written revelation. It's at the end of it's in verse 5. And as he opened the law, all the people what? Stood. Why do we stand when the scripture is being read? It's a sign of respect. It's almost, almost a universal sign of respect on seven continents. Okay? So the sign of respect. The king is speaking. Let us all stand and hear the word of the king. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so this whole scene of covenant renewal is becoming the wave of the future. Away from the temple and more into public teaching like this. It's becoming the wave of the future. A, 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 a reverent reliance upon the written revelation. Not looking for any new word of the Lord but a reverent reliance upon the written revelations, becoming a wave, a wave of the future. The need for well-read scripture. Did you notice how it says, we'll read about it later, we'll talk about it in just a minute, but it says they read the law clearly. The need for well-read scripture publicly is extremely important, becoming the wave of the future. The warm-hearted anticipation and eagerness to hear God's written revelation read out loud and so much more. That's becoming the way of the future. Much of Nehemiah 8 has the feel of familiarity with classic Christian worship. In fact, most of the reformers would go back to Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 to find and see how they were supposed to conduct their services. You can begin to see why as you read Nehemiah 8 and 10. This is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, told Old Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself. That's pretty strong language. Until I come, devote yourself. Give yourself entirely, entirely to it. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what you see happening here. The well-read Scriptures. And so, what he's telling Timothy to do is practice reading out loud. Practice reading it so that everybody can understand you, okay? Things like that. So it all fits in what you see going on here. 
And it would be really important, especially in a time when most people could not afford a copy of the scriptures. Right? Think about the laws written. You couldn't afford it because it would cost too much to go hire a scribe to go through and make a copy, a handwritten copy on the, the precious paper or the veil of vellum or whatever they used, and then give you your own copy. You couldn't do it. Hard for most of us to afford a copy of the Bible. You had to have basically one in the community that was read to everyone, and then the vast majority of people couldn't read either. So it was extremely important to have well read scripture. It still is extremely important to have well read scripture done publicly. Anyway, so they're gathering around the law, the law of God, and it rightly becomes worship around the law of God. Worship around the law of God. And that's verses 6 to 8. Now notice what's happening in verses 6 to 8. Not only are the people standing and respecting God's written law being read, but they're also very vocal in responding to Ezra's prayers. They're physically active and engaged by lifting their hands in prayer and adoration. They even bow their heads and their faces to the ground. Here's what it says in verse 6. And Ezra blessed Yahweh. So this is a prayer. Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. Right? Sounds like some history here with Mary. She would say, Amen, Amen, right? They would say, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Very much what Paul says in 1 Timothy. I desire men, holy men everywhere, to put holy hands in prayer. It's the same kind of thing. Lifting up their hands. They bow their heads and worship Yahweh with their faces to the ground. They're physically engaging as they hear the word read, and they're engaging in worship as it happens. And all of these worshipful activities include, for example, include the clerical agents. There's a list of them here. The clerical agents who are helping the people understand the written revelation of God. Here's how it goes at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. The Levites... Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book the law of God clearly. They read clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It really means, by the way, in a nutshell, what preaching is supposed to be. That the people walk away understanding the reading. Without scripture, the preacher has nothing to say. Does that make sense? It's really, in the end, meant for you to understand the reading. And that's the pattern already here. Now think about it. Without a sound system, out in the open air, surrounded by a large crowd of people who we're going to see in just a minute, would be very noisy, actually. So in that situation, you have a need for multiple readers and expositors. That's what they're doing. They're actually helping Ezra to take a breath, to take a break, and they pick up the reading, and then they will stop and explain it, and then continue the reading. So there's some sense of teaching and exhortation and proclamation going on with this. But they're a tag team. There's multiple readers and expositors. If you know anything about the old camp meetings in America early 1800s, or even before that, the old Scottish communion seasons, it almost feels very similar. So in the old Scottish communion seasons, because they only had uh, one or two ministers in the area, they would start going around in the circuit, they would have a communion season, be a week long of preaching. 
will be outdoors because it might be a thousand people. And so they would build a, a little shed, if you will, that had a roof over it so he would stand inside of it to protect him from the elements, but also to take the molecules of his speaking and focus them to the congregation. And he would be reading and preaching, and then after a while, the other preacher would come and start reading and preaching, and they would just do that for a week. That's what they would do. It's very similar. It sounds very similar to what you see going on here. But the principal format for us to grasp is that the people are rallying around the written revelation of God. They are hearing it read and read well from an elevated position. They're hearing it expand, expounded. There's praying going on. They are verbally responding to the prayer, and they are physically engaging in worshiping the God of this written revelation. God's written revelation is read, preached, etc., and they're worshiping the God of this written revelation. There's the of the principal layout that you see happening. So they're worshiping around the law of God. But the folks are also joyful around the law of God. And this starts in verse 9 and 12, which we didn't read, but I'll read parts of it in just a minute. Now notice it doesn't begin joyfully, right? It begins in a different way. Look at how it goes. Verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. They are troubled by what they're hearing. As they begin to hear the law, um, they hear and they're being cut to the heart. And they're crying out, so it's getting very noisy. And it sounds almost like the folks at that first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Peter's preaching. He's preaching from the Old Testament. He's preaching from the prophet Joel. He's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people cry out, Brothers, what must we do? And then hearing the invitation, it says they're cut to the heart and they cry out, Brothers, what must we do? And then hearing the invitation, to draw near, find forgiveness. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, and everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from, from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And that moment when they went from being cut to the heart to responding to this invitation to draw near to the Lord and be filled with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, then there's a similar fellowship that ends up resulting, and it's in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And it just keeps going on as you get down in Acts 2. It says they were glad and generous and they were excited. That's what you see happening here as well. Joyful around the law of God. So here in Nehemiah 8, the crowds gathered around, worshiping around the law of God. They're cut to the heart. But then they're drawn into the joy of the Lord. The very law that condemns sin is the very law that promises grace. Let me give you an example. This is one of the things they would have, would have heard. 
in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by who, by, uh, but who will by no means clear the guilty, etc., and so forth. They would have heard not only law, but gospel at the same exact time. And so, cut to the heart, they're drawn to the joy of the Lord. Because of his steadfast love that endures forever. And Nehemiah, as I already read to you, Nehemiah was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites. He taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites called all the people, saying, Be quiet, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, to drink, and to sit portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they understood the words that were declared to them. They came into this gathering around the law of God and worshiping around the law of God. They came with anticipation. And though they began, began by grieving their sins when they heard the law of God, they did not leave disappointed or grieving. They made great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Brothers and sisters, when we come around the word of God, we too should come ready, ready to be touched, ready to be convicted, ready to be exposed, but also ready to be lifted up into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Do we come with that anticipation? That's the way we're come. So this joyfulness around the law of God then brought forth reforms around the law of God, and that's verses 13 through 18. Since the law of God had taken on new significance to them, they sent the elders and the leaders to go study it more fully the next day. Notice verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together as described in order to study the words of the law. What they found in that study is that they and their forebears had overlooked an important moment in the seventh month. They had overlooked and neglected the festival of booths. And what was the festival of booths about? You can go back and read Numbers 29 and uh, the related passages in Leviticus. But it was a physical, week-long, seven-day-long reminder, remembrance, very much like the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Supper, a memorial in that sense, but a entering into the redemption of the Lord. Who provided for them for that 40 years? Yes, the Lord did. Who gave the manna? The Lord. Who gave the water out of the rock? The Lord, right? Who, who, who had to confront them at times, but who also preserved them so that even their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out. Who was the one that was sustaining them and, and keeping them in His grace? The Lord. 
And so the Temple of Booz was a reenactment of living in the wilderness in tents. It was very much a gospel sacrament. Isn't that great? And they had been neglecting it. Right? For generations. So as they're reading the law of the Lord, they go, oh, we and our forebears have neglected this thing. We need to be doing this reforming. We need to be doing this reforming. Now they could, uh, now here's what they could have done when they read this. They could have made excuses. They could have said, as I've heard people do before, well, that's for bygone ages. It doesn't apply to us. They could have skipped it. They could have rationalized it away, thinking, remembering their situation, just go back and look at chapter 6 and 7, all the pressure they're under. They could have rationalized it away. They could have said something like, well, surely that doesn't apply now in our situation because we've got too many enemies around the gates and they're trying to cut our mess, cut our heads off, and then we don't have enough food to eat, and so we're all going to starve and we don't have to get out there and harvest all the time, right? Or harvest as quickly as we can. Whatever, they could have made all kinds of rationalizations and excuses to not be reforming around the law. But notice instead, they hear it, they receive it, and they submit to it. And so it says in verse 17, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great what? Rejoicing. I go back to the joy of the Lord. This is our strength. And it has to be with the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And so this reforming work around the law of the Lord led to more joy. It was very great rejoicing. But it also led to more written revelation of God being read and explained. Verse 18. Day by day, from the first day to the last, to the last day, he read the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule, according to what God had said back in verse 29, etc. Notice that they were reforming, reforming around the law of God. So as we try to tidy this up and bring it to a conclusion, I want you to notice then. That as they have rebuilt after a hot mess, remember there they they when Nehemiah shows up, they were a dispirited people and did not move forward with rebuilding the walls. They were just a subjective people, defeated. There were all kinds of political alliances and intermarriage alliances and all this stuff. They were just beaten down, and now they rebuilt the wall, the wall by God's grace. Remember, there was a speed rebuild that shocked everybody, and they were untrained workers. Or the, you know, there didn't appear to be any trained masons that, that were involved in the rebuilding. So they rebuilt after a hot mess, and what do they do? They arise out of the rubble to do what? To hear the word of the Lord and to worship them. They don't arise and say, well, I'm glad that's over, but what we did, it's a great success, we've accomplished. They arise out of the, the hot mess and out of all the rubble to worship God and to hear from God through his word and to revitalize their involvement in the covenant and submit themselves to God's reforming word. They could have said, well, you know, we haven't done this you know, in quite a while, and I really like being at home with my fuzzy slippers on and my bathrobe, 
When I should have worshipped God anywhere else on my own, right? They could have said that. They could have possibly said, well, you know, it's been a long time and, and I just didn't like being comfortable at home and I'll, I'll just watch it online. But instead, what do they do when they come out of their hot mess? It's time to worship the Lord. We need to hear from the Lord. That's the point here. And that should encourage us as we ourselves have come out of our own hot messes. And it should guide us in the future. Corporate, public worship of God's people around the God of His people should always and ever be our aim when we are rebuilding after, when we rebuild after a hot mess. But further, the centrality of God's written and read revelation for God-pleasing worship needs to be a top drawer criterion of a good church. Let me say it again. Is that good enough? <laughs> the centrality of God's written and read revelation for God-pleasing worship needs to be a top drawer criterion of a good church. Though youth groups, fellowship, cool music, uplifting gatherings are all fine in their own right. Whenever we're visiting churches, whenever we're running around somewhere, maybe we're looking somewhere, one of our first questions should be, how is God's written revelation used and treated in that congregation? How is God's written revelation used and treated in that congregation? Is God's written revelation well read in the assembly? I'm going to say that again. Is God's written revelation well read in the assembly? If you go to a church and the Bible almost never gets read, and maybe, or maybe just one verse or one sentence of a verse, and that's all you hear, there's a problem. I know that all of us are illiterate. I know we all have copies of the Bible, physical copies, Bible apps, and so forth. But as you heard in the shorter catechism, the reading and the preaching are a means of grace. The reading of God's word and the preaching. And if any of you were preachers, I would tell you, you need to practice reading scripture out loud. You need to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. That's why we tell preachers, but you're not preachers. So I'm preaching to myself this month, right? That's an important thing to do. So you need to listen and you need to pay attention to those things. That's extremely important. Is God's written revelation well read in the assembly, or is it hardly read at all? Is it read and expounded on, verse 8, so that the people understood the reading, or is it read and then disagreed with, stopped at, or consistently mistreated? I remember, I won't tell you the denomination doesn't really matter, but I remember a church I went to. It was a great liturgy. They had a very Bible-filled liturgy. All the worship was beautiful. It was great. There was lots of scripture reading. And then the particular leader of that congregation got up and denied the historical Adam and Eve and the real Satan who approached as a serpent. And I thought, you know, if he hadn't spoken, this would have been a great service. But he denied the scripture. I knew then this was not a good place to be. Does that make sense? Okay. I think when we walk away from Nehemiah 8, we have a healthy sense of the proper approach a congregation should have towards God's written revelation. Lastly, we ask us some questions. Do we come to the assembly 
ready both morning and evening. You become ready to and desirous of attending to the read and written revelation of God with diligence, preparation, and prayer to receive it in faith and love to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Do we come with the anticipation that a Bible-centered worship around God to draw us into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We come with the anticipation that Bible-centered scripture, uh, 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 worship around the Lord will lead us to the joy of the Lord in our strength. That's what we should be able to do. Nehemiah, pray. We thank you, Lord God, for what we see and for what we how you have provided for these people. You have given them Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord our comfort. And through him, you have led them to rebuild after a hot mess. And now, we gather to worship, they gather to hear your written revelation, read and expounded. We gather in that, in that context of your word to worship you, to pray. Come to find the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Lord, I pray for us who are here now. I pray for our whole congregation that we would always come to that anticipation. I pray for this church always that the Word of God, written revelation of God, would be central in our worship as we be well read and expounded clearly. That it would feed our souls and feed our hearts constantly. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who always come to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed, to attend unto it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, to come ready to receive it in faith and love, to come ready to lay it up our hearts, to practice it in our lives. Hear our prayer, O Lord, and let our cry.